Amen. As we're having a seat, can we just thank these guys for leading us in worship? They work hard each week to do that. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open those to Esther chapter 7. If you are unfamiliar with us at Grace, we've been walking through the book of Esther each Sunday during the month of August. And the reason for that is... Ultimately, I believe that the story of Esther tells us the story of ourselves. Uh, as we look at the story, we see that you have a young woman who is in a world where she lives in compromise. She has an uncle who was in compromise, and she has to make some fateful decisions that will impact those who are around her. The Bible is full of uh, supernatural stories. The Old Testament in particular is full of things that we see and that we can read of that take place where we would look and say, that would be fantastic if it were to be depicted with CGI. Uh, if you look through the Old Testament, you see in numerous places where we would say that is a supernatural hand of God. It, it, we start early in the book of Genesis with the, the act of creation. You see where Sarah has a baby. If you are unfamiliar with the story of Sarah and Abraham, he is, over, he is 100, she is 90 years old. She has a baby, a real baby. And when she has said baby, uh, it is miraculous. We can see the plague that would be uh, used to draw the children of Israel out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. We, are, we even see the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. We see the parting of the Red Sea. In the Old Testament, we see donkeys who talk. In the Old Testament, we also see the fall of Jericho when people march around with instruments and the wall comes crashing down. We see fire fall from heaven at Mount Carmel. We see the Bible using supernatural things to tell us that we have a God who is supernatural. And these are things that we are drawn to because we are drawn to things that we consider to be supernatural and magnificent. And then we have the story of Esther, which is not that. Ten chapters, 167 verses. There is no old lady having a baby. There is no fire falling from heaven. There are no talking bushes or donkeys. There is no lightning. We have none of these things in Esther. And that's the reason that I believe it can be so important to us. It has cultural implications for us. Because they are choosing to live in a convenient situation and adapting it to its and adapting to all of the things that that convenient situation offers. They are confronted with the possibility of their people being executed, and in the midst of that, they have a decision to make. It is not an obviously supernatural story. It is the story of a people opening their eyes to the situation that happens to be around them. It is ordinary people choosing to do extraordinary things. Is that going to be our story as a church? Will that be our story as the people of God who live in South Brazoria County where we need one more Chick-fil-A? Is that the story of God's people living in this community with the entirety of God's created world in mind? We look into the story of Esther and we see that it's the story of us. 
Previously on Esther, if you've ever watched a television show that has the previously on, they let you know what took place the week before. I know that some of you guys were not with us last week. Some of you may not be with us next week. But as you look at the previously in Esther, we see in chapter 5, Queen Esther has gone to her husband, who is the king of the world. He is a Persian, and she has said to him, I want you to do something for me, and that thing would be for the two of us to have dinner. Which is super weird at, their, at this place in the world, at this point in history, for a husband and a wife, especially the king, to have dinner with her. They've not spent time together for 30 days. When, when we also continue to read through the story of Esther, we've got a, the villain of the story. His name is Haman or Haman, depending upon how Persian you want to pronounce it. And, and you have Haman that we find in, the, in this book of the Bible who wants to see the people of Israel executed because one man will not bow to him. And he is the right-hand man of the king. So when we get to chapter 6, Esther has invited her husband. Or rather, she has had dinner with her husband and Haman. And in chapter 6, the king has a dream. And in the midst of his dream, he looks back and remembers, we never celebrated Mordecai. What should we do to celebrate Mordecai? And Haman, who wants to hang Mordecai is forced to come up with the nicest thing possible to honor him. When we get to the end of chapter 6, when his wife, Haman's wife, hears of what's taking place, he goes to her. They're having a conversation about how sad he is that the king would celebrate Mordecai. And she says to him, oh man, you're cooked. That is a paraphrase, but that's basically what she said. And in chapter 7, we pick up with Haman going to a second dinner with with Esther and her husband, King Xerxes. And when we get there, we see where Haman gets his. Verse 1, the king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Told you. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, lots of wine throughout the book of Esther, the king asked that the biblical word for wine is wine. So we have the and on the second day while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Esther, whatever you ask, I'm going to give it to you. Whatever you seek, even half of my kingdom, you can have it. It will be done for you. And Esther said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, And this is usually where she asked him to come to dinner again. Spare my life. What if you're having dinner with your wife and in the midst of your conversation, uh, as you talk about all of the things that come with marital conversations, she says to you, here's what I would like for you to do. Spare my life. That's my request. What do you mean, spare your life? You're the queen. You live in the castle. You have a great place to be. You are a piece on the chessboard. Spare your life. And spare my people, what people she belongs to. Because after all, she has been given a Persian name. And he has no idea that she is Jewish because her uncle Mordecai said to her, don't tell them that you're Jewish. And she listened. Spare my life and spare the lives of my people. This is the one thing that I would ask of you. This is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, to death, and to extermination. 
If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept everything quiet from you. Indeed, the trouble would not be worth burdening with you with king. He is confused. He is conflicted. He has no idea why she's asking these things. And he is married with wine. And Xerxes, or King Ahasuerus, spoke up and asked Queen Esther, Who is this? And where is the one who would devise such a scheme? They are at the dinner table. One of the people at the table has just said, This person has wronged me. And the person who wronged her is listening as the conversation takes place. I sit around dinner tables with children sometimes. And they will begin to let you know as to how one of the other people at the table has wronged them. But they may not name names. I'll be honest. They name names more than they don't. But they may not name names. And you can see the expression on a kid's face when they are busted. Moms and dads, can, can we just speak truth in this morning? You know when your children have done something wrong by their reaction to what's taking place in their midst. Can you imagine being Haman, drinking his glass of wine, eating his gyro, and as he's sitting there, and that's what I'm thinking they're eating, and as they're sitting there having the conversation, she's saying, there is someone who wants me to die, not only for me to die, wants my people to die, and I would love for something to be done about him. And the king has no idea what's taking place. He's, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. He is furious. The answer comes in verse 6. The adversary... And the enemy is the evil Haman. Haman stood terrified before the king and the queen. The king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden. To the banquet hall. Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Would you actually violate my wife while I am in the house? As soon as the statement left his mouth, they covered Haman's face. So the king's in the garden trying to figure out what to do because his wife has been wronged and he wants to right the wrongness of his wife. While he is there, Haman, who is the one who is wronging her, is literally laying on top of her begging for mercy. The one person who wants to see all of the Jewish people exterminated is at the feet of a Jewish woman asking her for deliverance. Because his sin has caught up with him. And that's the story. No matter where you are or how sneaky you happen to be or how contrived you happen to be with all the decisions that you make, there will be a point eventually for you and for me where our sin catches up with us. There are consequences for sin. The wages, according to Paul, of sin is death. And for Haman, in this very situation, the wages of sin is death. However, he is not so much worried about the confession of his sin. His great concern is the consequence that comes from it. And he wants to continue to avoid it. I don't want anything to do with this begging, pleading for his life. But the king walks in notices all of this taking place and thinks that he's trying to take advantage of her. 
Haman gets his, the king sends two eunuchs in, lots of eunuchs, lots of wine throughout the story, comes in, puts a bag over his head, takes him away. And then you notice that there is someone in the story who has been planning lots of things, who's been part of the story from the very beginning. This person's name is Harbona, or we could call him a guy who does not definitely want to be associated with Haman. And when he sees this, he says, there's a gallow that Haman built. If you'll remember... Haman built a gallow, a place to hang Mordecai, in chapter 5 of the book. He has this put up so that when Mordecai is put to death, that's where it will be. But Haman is hung on the gallow that he built for someone else. Haman is hung, Haman is hung on the gallow. And Xerxes, the king, his anger subsides. Chapter 8, we see that Xerxes, now that he has dealt with the one, the usurper, the one who would wrong his wife, he thinks that everything is okay. He thinks that she is happy, and since she is happy, everything will be fine. As long as we make sure that she is taken care of, there is nothing that could, could phase her from this point forward. Yet he notices in chapter 8, something takes place. The same day, Xerxes awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. This is my cousin Mordecai. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and he gave it to Mordecai and Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. Mordecai now has everything that was Haman's. He now reigns in the place that Haman reigned. He is now the right hand man of the king. Yet Esther needs to address the king again. Because if you're in the world that they live in, there's what's called the law of the Medes and the Persians. And the law of the Medes and the Persians is simply this. Once a king declares something, that law cannot be revoked. It cannot be undone. What is done cannot be undone simply by saying, undo it. It's a very unique thing. And Esther realizes that though Haman is dead, the ramification of Haman's decision is going to live on. Though this person who is vile and evil has been defeated, there is a looming shadow, a continual ghost of him and what he decided that still is part of this story. It does not, it's, in the event, it's not blatantly obvious to us as a people this morning. This is how sin works in the lives of believers. In Jesus, sin has been dealt with completely. So, so hear me say this. I, I know that in rooms like this, if we're not careful, we can hear that sin has been dealt with, but we look at our own sin and we say, but you don't know my sin. You don't know the depth of my sin. You don't know the weight of my sin. You don't know the struggle that I have with sin. You don't know how bad my sin happens to be. In Jesus, sin has been dealt with completely, fully. It's been put to death. However, the consequences of sin are still there. The temptation of sin is still there. The struggle of sin is still there. 
It's why Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3 to put to death what is earthly in us. We as believers in Jesus who have had our sin dealt with through the death and resurrection of the Son of God are to continue to put to death what is already dead. Esther in chapter 8, she knows that this shadow of Haman is going to reign and rule over these people. And because this shadow is there, and because the Jewish people are still going to be wiped out, destroyed, defeated, hurt, persecuted, because they are going to be plundered and everything stolen from them, Esther addressed the king again. She fell at his feet. And she begged him to revoke the evil of Haman, the Agagite, and his plot he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the gold scepter toward Esther, so she got up and stood before the king. She comes in weeping, crying. She's not supposed to be weeping and crying in the presence of the king. This is supposed to be a chill place, a don't worry, be happy place, a good vibe place. But she's coming in begging, and she is putting her life on the line again, saying to him, hey, would you just listen to me? And when he extends the scepter to her, she receives this by touching the tip of it. And when she touches the tip of the scepter, she's saying to him, your pardon has been received. I'm going to talk to you now on behalf of my people. And I'm going to beg for you to care for them because the king doesn't care for them. They don't matter to him. Xerxes thinks that his wife should be fine Because he's made sure she was taken care of. But she has a whole people she's standing there for. We see in Xerxes the contrast. A contrast between him and the real king of the universe. She goes into his presence at great risk, we come into God's presence with a great welcome. She comes in pleading for him to listen. We come in knowing that God already does. She, our God is unlike Xerxes in that he is continually working to overcome our rebellion. God is... He does not need to be convinced that people should be saved. He is actually in the work of completing that salvation. We see the story of Xerxes. We see the story of of how he is unlike our God. Because when we look at our God, we see that he does not need someone to plead. He actually sends someone to show us that we need him. He sends his son to die in our place. The one that he loves the most is sent to us. Whereas Esther has to continually come into the presence of the king asking for him to care. Our God never stops caring. God sent Jesus because he does care for us. We have the story of Esther pleading on behalf of the, king, on behalf of the Jewish people. Verse 5, If it pleases the king and I have found favor before him, if this matter seems right to the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written... Let it revoke the documents that the scheming Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all of the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? Seven. I've given Haman's estate to Esther, and he was hanged on the gallows because he attacked her. 
because he attacked the Jews. Verse 8. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews and seal it with the royal signet. A document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet cannot be revoked. Esther, I love you. I care for you. And I want you to know how much I love and care for you. But I cannot undo what's already been decided. She's begging. She's pleading. She's asking. She's wanting him to do anything and for something to take place in the lives of the Jewish people. They don't need an announcement. They need action. They need something to be done. They need a, a word to be spoken. Do we have a genuine concern for non-Christian people? Do we care that the people who live next door to us who do not know Jesus will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Those sound effects are fantastic. <laughs> Does it burden us that we claim to have hope and that there are those in our lives who do not claim said hope? Does it affect us that there will be people who do not know Jesus for eternity? Scaling it back. Do we as followers of Jesus care that there are people in the world who do not have daily needs met physically? Do we care? Does it burden us? Do things burden us as people who claim that we have had all of our needs met in Jesus, that there are those who do not know Jesus, nor do they have their eternal or physical needs met? Do we realize that we have been given opportunity to speak on behalf of Jesus? Jared and I had a conversation this morning, earlier this week. If you are unfamiliar with uh, fast food chicken, there's an argument going on right now. And if you don't know about this, there, there is one major chicken company. They're open six days a week. They take a Sabbath on Sunday. Uh, Chick-fil-A. It's pretty fantastic. Uh, however, there's another company. They're actually in our parking lot. They're called Popeyes. And Popeyes came out this week with their very own chicken sandwich that they are saying is better than the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. Has anybody seen any of this or is this just me? All right. All right. Me and people who like fried chicken. Awesome. So, uh, if you don't know... Th- Popeyes has a social media campaign that they push pretty hard. And here's what took place this week. They began to tweet pictures of their chicken sandwich. And it looks bigger than earth. It's the largest image I've ever seen of a chicken sandwich. Great angle on the picture. And as you look at it, it looks amazing and delicious. And because of their Instagram post... Popeyes, from shares, from retweets, from all of the things that go alongside of that, received $24 million worth of free advertising. $24 million worth of free advertisement simply because people looked at their product and they said that that product had value and was worth it. We show up here. Sunday, after Sunday, after Sunday, after Sunday. If you're a shift worker, your job 
flows a little bit differently. It's Sunday, work, Sunday, work, Sunday, work. But many of you are consistently here claiming that this product, it has value to you at least in the sense of where you go on a Sunday morning. Are you leveraging your lives in order for people to know and believe and see and hear that Jesus is actually that valuable? Paul says this in Romans 9, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could not wish that I myself, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Jesus for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Adoniram Judd, some missionary to Burma, says this, How do Christians discharge this trust committed to them? They let three-fourths of the world sleep the sleep of death, ignorant of the simple truth that a Savior died for them, content if they can be useful in the little circle of their acquaintance. They quietly sit and see whole nations perish for lack of knowledge. To the ends of the earth we've been called. That means the doorstep next to us. That means the people that we spend our time with. This announcement, King Xerxes says, it's been made. Everybody knows. You can come up with something to undo it. But what I've said is done. So, here we pick up in verse 7. King Xerxes said to Esther, Look, I've given Haman's estate to Esther, and he was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. Write in the name, in the king's name, whatever pleases you concerning the Jews, and seal it with the royal signet. A document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. You can almost see him shrugging his shoulders, lifting his eyes, rolling his eyes. I've done all that I can do. What else do you want me to do? But Mordecai begins to work. Mordecai wrote in, the, in King Xerxes' name and he sealed edicts with a royal signet ring. He sent the documents by mounted couriers who rode fast horses bred in the royal stables. The king's edict gave Jews in every, each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils. This would take on a this would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar. So the king declared. Through Mordecai. Mordecai declared by having the ring that they could defend themselves. At, it, when these people would attack them, you can defend yourself, you can care for yourself, you can, you can trust that you have been given permission from the king to provide and make sure that everything's okay. You do what you can do. How much more has God given us as believers in Jesus in 2019 an opportunity not to fight for victory, but to fight in response to the victory we have in Jesus? 
We look at this text and we see over and over the story of Mordecai, the story of Xerxes, and how God worked in all of them. And as we look and we see how God worked in them, we notice God using them to accomplish His providential purposes. But do not miss that God uses people. He is using ordinary people. And you may say, well, the queen does not sound ordinary. She started from the most humble beginnings. She started from a conflicted place. And God can use each and every one of us. So many of us are looking and we are thinking and we are saying, God cannot use me because I did this. And we are defining ourselves by all that we were. God cannot use me because I made mistakes. God cannot use me because I did this. I said that. I acted this way. God cannot use me because that neighbor and I, we looked at one another cross when we drove beside one another in the street. God cannot use me because my schedule does not allow it. Over and over, we are defined by what we were. And God is saying to us, very much like Mordecai, much more like Esther, don't worry so much about what you were. Worry more about what God is calling you to respond to now. What is God calling us to respond to now? And God is calling us to respond by remembering. By remembering what He has done and where He has met us and how He has shown Himself to us. We look at the story of Esther. We look at the story of Mordecai. And we see over and over God being providential and working through these very unique people to tell his very important story. 9.20-28 Mordecai recorded these events, sent letters to all the Jews in all of King Xerxes' provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate. This is the party to celebrate what God has done. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year, 22, verse 22, because during those days the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. So the Jews agreed to this practice that had begun that Mordecai had written for them to do. The, the feast is called Purim. It's actually the word they've cast per or cast lots throughout the book. And it's to celebrate God's providence. And the festival is pretty interesting. It's, they'll get together, Jewish people even today, and they'll wear costumes. So my kids would love it. They love costumes. And your kids would love it too. And as they wear these costumes, it doesn't matter. Some of them dress like Esther. Some of them dress like, like Xerxes. And some of them dress like Mordecai. Some of them dress like Donald Trump. There are numerous costumes that the people wear. And as they wear these costumes, they get together. They'll read the story of Esther, all ten chapters. I know that that seems a lot for us. But as they read the ten chapters, every time Haman's name is mentioned, the people boo so loudly that you cannot hear his name because we don't want the villain to stand out. We want them to be pushed back. And as they read the story, they are remembering something. Every year they have been called to remember. Why should we remember the good things that God has done? We are called to remember because we're terrible at it. And we are terrible at remembering and we're really good at taking God for granted. Here's the mode of operation of God's people in the Old Testament. And it is also the mode of operation for most of us. God does something great. Anyone ever had God do something great? Raise your hand. Oh, look at you guys. We are glad for a time. Anyone ever experienced that? Glad for a time. And then we forget about the great thing that God has done. 
they have this festival every year to remember God did something great and we are likely to remember that for a time but we're going to forget it was put together to celebrate what should have never been forgotten we take communion as a church and as we do that if we're not careful we don't see it for what it is we take communion so that we remember what should never be forgotten that God did something great for us in Jesus that's the story of most Christians we, we come to faith in Jesus and our hearts beat fast I remember where I was when I came to faith in Jesus and I remember the season that followed that and if I'm not careful I can forget how momentous of a thing took place when that happened we take communion to celebrate what should have never been forgotten. We, we take communion and we celebrate the exact same thing that we celebrate at baptism when we do that as a church. It's remembering what God did. So many of us invite people to our baptisms. None of us invite someone to commune with us. We see the story of Esther and the story of remembrance. That the lot of God's people is not left to chance. And it helps us to remember that God is a God of love and justice who has determined how things happen in the world, but we, like Esther, are called to be part of seeing what God has ordained happen. You're called to it. Any of us who would say we are followers of Jesus who have separated ourselves from that have missed the full truth of what it means to be God's people. That we are called to this great story. I love the story of Esther because it's the story of me. It's the story of my compromise. And it's the story that even when I look back at my struggle and my situation, I don't have to be defined by that. I'm defined by Jesus who, who tells me, go forward, march forward, live in faith. Trust me, trust me, trust me. And I would pray and hope the same for each of us. Yeah, I want to pray for us. I'm going to invite you just to bow your heads. Each week we've provided a devotion from the book of Esther. I would, I would encourage you this week to think through that. If you've not been doing that with us throughout the month of August, I, I would just touch base with us. They're, they're on our church website. We can show you where they're at. I'd love for us to think through these things together as we consider this new year that's coming, this new church calendar year. And how we're entering into a season where people are more likely to, to respond if we were to invite them to something like a worship gathering. Where people may be more willing to hear the good news of Jesus and what he's done for us. I don't know why, just a, a shift in schedule, it, it knocks us off of our foundation a little bit. Maybe we're a little more responsive and receptive to things. So, I'm going to pray for us and I want to encourage us to pray as I pray that God would help us to see and seize the opportunities that he gives us to not walk into our days blind to not miss that we are the people of God empowered by God for the purposes of God 
that will shape us and because it shapes us that will send us if you need me I'm in the back of the room if you've never trusted in Jesus the Bible says the wage of sin is, is death that's what Haman dealt with but if you've never placed your faith in Christ that there is a gift that's been offered to you and that's the gift of Jesus there is eternal life in him if you would like to ask questions about that or chat with me about that I'm in the back corner of the room we love you. We're glad you were here today. Jesus, we trust you. We trust that your word is powerful and that it's true and that you have spoken today. We pray that these people have heard a better sermon than the one that I preached. And we pray that we will have your heart. Because in my own heart, Lord, I'm cold and I'm callous towards sin. I'm separate and I don't see people the way that you see them. But God, if I ask you to show me you, to let me see things the way you see people, to let, to let me see people the way that you saw me, Lord, I pray we would remember. We ask all this in Jesus' name.